my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to talk about Gordon Parks. Who is Gordon Parks, you may ask? Well, he's a... He's a complicated man, (laughs) and no one understands him but his woman. He is a photographer, musician, novelist, poet, essayist, and last but not least director most famous for directing shaft which shut listen- your mouth oh my god is it gonna be more of this throughout the entire episode well, oh i'm gonna run out of lyrics really soon <laughs> so gordon parks is a director that i was aware of but i had never really explored his filmography i had seen shaft ages ago but when i picked him for this podcast i was like well shaft is seminal movie everybody knows what it is so what else has this director done and how has he impacted the landscape of cinema obviously not very much other than shaft but i think what we found out and i was a little bit aware of this because some of his work was in an art gallery of ontario exhibit from last year do you Hmm. remember this the outsiders exhibit no it was this it was from a year ago and it was all these photographers and artists who sort of documented uh, american upheaval in the 50s 60s and 70s so diane arbus was in there and nan golden and a few others and his work was in there Um, And I think what I really learned this week is, uh, I guess, what I should have known before, you know, just the basic fact about him, which is that he's primarily a photojournalist. Yep. One of the greatest photojournalists of all time, probably. Yeah, if you just write his name and look up his Mm -hmm. his photography, he captured a side of America. And just his photography in general is so beautiful and iconic Mm -hmm. that... He is one of the greats. And because me and you were not super into photography, we weren't really aware of that. Yeah. Um, and he's also interesting because he rose to the absolute top of his profession as a photographer. He was the most famous photographer at Life magazine when it was the biggest magazine in America. And he was a black man. And the way that he did that was not from coming from money or having the right connections. He actually did claw his way up and the only way that he actually got to direct his first movie which was 1969's the learning tree is by being the greatest black artist who does everything Mm -hmm. because he was a photographer he was a musician he was a writer and he was also a novelist and he wrote his first book the learning tree based on his experience as a child growing up in kansas and with all of these accolades he was given the chance the first black a writer-director ever in a studio setting to make his own film. Uh, So we watched The Learning Tree this week, which was also uh, another little uh, tidbit for you, was one of the early films preserved by the Library of Congress. Hmm. I think more for its... Historical value. Yeah, than anything else. This movie is about a black teenager growing up in Kansas in the South in this community where it's kind of an interesting community it depicts because he's facing prejudice at every step and yet it's also a community where the white and black populations live in a sort of fragile coexistence. It's not all in out like, ah, we hate these black people. They're the worst. It's all bubbling under the surface and other people are ignorant of it, thinking that they have it better than they actually have. And in fact, Gordon Parks uh, went to an integrated high school, which is what we see depicted in this film, I believe, because the community was too poor to afford both uh, segregated black and white school systems. But it's still an environment struck by violence and 
they believe that all these black kids will go nowhere but uh, being maids or other low-class jobs like that. Mm-hmm. An interesting scene happens when the Gordon Parks uh, surrogate confronts his teacher of giving him a bad grade and she says listen i hear you want to go to college like stop wasting your time like kind of stay in your place and when he gets brought to the principal's office the principal is shocked that his teacher would tell him that yeah so it's a community with some sort of liberal whites uh a lot of a lot of reactionary whites as well so you know it's it's a more nostalgic film than you might expect about growing up in the Deep South coming from a black filmmaker at this time. But it's also one that is didactic in the way that it presents its themes and its ideas. Well, there are two main characters, two children. In addition to the Gordon Park surrogate, there's uh, another young black kid who has a much harder upbringing uh, with a neglectful father who turns out to be a thief, who the Gordon Park surrogate watches kill the white farmer that he's working for and steal money. So the Gordon Park's character testifies against him in court, which pits these two black children against each other. And the underlying message of the film is just choose peace, not violence. Mm -hmm. And it gets to that message. It's very clear, but it's not always dramatically compelling. Well, I'm a little bit at loss for words to explain my reaction to this movie because I think a lot of what I like about the movie is also what I don't like about the movie. It's sort of meandering. It's pretty looking and it's sort of, it's got this nostalgia to it, but it also feels a little tame, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I, I can understand where you're coming from, where I think that it just feels like it is the product of a studio system. We watched a documentary about Gordon Parks this week. What was it called again? It was called Gordon Parks Half Past Autumn, where he was talking about how at various times in his life he had a somewhat combative relationship with the black intelligentsia. Uh, He's somebody who often worked, you know, at White Run magazines for White Run Studios, and he had a cordial but distant relationship with some of the more militant groups that he covered. So he did photos of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, of Malcolm X, of the Black Panthers, but he always kept a certain respectful distance from them because he fundamentally didn't believe they're more militant attitudes. Even though that he and Malcolm X did befriend each other quite Mm -hmm. closely to the point that Malcolm X made Gordon Parks the godfather of his daughter. So I I don't know. It's it's difficult for me to talk about some of these movies because we're two white guys. Yeah, yeah, we're we're two white guys. And it's difficult to understand, A, what it was like to watch them when they came out, Mm -hmm. but B, also to try to figure out what would have been the dialogue around a movie like this in sort of the black intelligentsia at the time. Would a movie like The Learning Tree have been regarded as a sort of Sidney Poitier kind of cultural artifact? In the heat of the night, like, oh, you know, a white guy is trying to tell a black story, and did they view him as kind of coming from that side? Yeah. Because he was playing for the man. But, I mean, it's a a pleasant film. It Mm. didn't quite get its tender hooks in me, but it's trying to do something very complex. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something important in that and i can understand why the library of congress would preserve it anyway uh great photographer though this is the thing that i learned most from that documentary i mean we see you know obviously as a photographer he was assigned many of these very racially charged subjects but we also see that he went over and documented the filming of 
uh, Stromboli. Mm-hmm. I believe that's what it was called, right? The Ingrid Bergman, Roberto Rossellini film. Yeah. Um, during a time when Ingrid Bergman was kind of public enemy number one in the United States. Yeah, because she was having a extramarital affair right. with Rossellini. And uh, his photos do a beautiful job telling that story. Some of his photos from France are very beautiful, where he was influenced by Chagall and Monet to create these more almost abstract looking photos using using different uh, aperture sizes. But I'm no art critic. I mean, <laughs> let, let's face it. <laughs> well, I'm just a guy who doesn't know a lot about photography. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. So we can just talk about how beautiful they look and how the compositions are very striking but, and iconic. But, but, that's pretty much but I must say, like, I feel a bit at a disadvantage talking about Gordon Parks because I the movies I saw this week, I was not wild about. And I feel that he is a very uh, important artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I I can't really do justice to what was good about him, which is that his photography. But this is a film podcast. So we are talking about his films. Like even the documentary we watched kind of put the films in the back end. As I think Gordon Parks did himself. Giving them very little uh, discussion because he did so many other things that were important in his life. But let's talk about Shaft. Yeah, because Shaft is the reason that we're talking about him in the first place. Uh It came out in 1971. It starred Richard Roundtree as John Shaft in a neo-noir where this uh, black private dick who's a sex machine to all the chicks <laughs> goes around busting heads and solving mysteries. Mm-hmm. So Will was kind of trying to tiptoe around and not talk about the subject because we both pretty much agree that this movie is not very good. Yeah, I, you know, like you, I saw it years ago, I think in high school, because it's one of those movies. Everybody knows Shaft. Yeah, and it's one of those movies you really want to like because the theme song is cool. Yes. And it's a, you know, great character. And it's the movie that really solidified black exploitation. I mean, there had been Cotton Comes to Harlem before that, mm-hmm. and there had been Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, both of which I think are better movies than this. Yeah, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song has a kind of raw energy and mm-hmm. anger to it because, as we talked about way back in our Melvin Van Peebles episode, he made it independently. Mm-hmm. And so you can feel every like drop of sweat going into the film. And 1970's Cotton Comes to Harlem, Ozzie Davis's film, it's a black exploitation picture that's also dealing with the idea of being black in America with every frame while still making it like an action picture. It's a fun rock, you know? Yeah, and it's, and it's fun. While Shaft is almost too serious for its own good. Well, what it did uh, was create this like black superhero in the tradition of James know, Bond. Yeah, or Philip Marlowe mm-hmm. or characters like that. And this is something that hadn't been able to penetrate as big as Shaft did. Uh-huh. And let's talk about the positives, though. Well, the first five minutes are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to see 1971's New York, like Shaft is the mm. place to go. Starts with a top down shot that just tracks across like the New- deuce. And yeah, you see all the movies that are playing. Oh, we liked that, didn't we? <laughs> and then it, and then Sh- uh, Shaft comes out of a subway car and just follows along. It's, As that walk to walk to walk music is playing by uh, Mr. Isaac Hayes. And then and he's just walking, you know? Yeah, and it's just cool. If it was like 90 minutes of that where you get to see cool locations. Yeah, it would be like news from home. <laughs> exactly, Chantel Ackerman And, uh, you know, Richard Roundtree literally walks into traffic. Yeah, you know? and then he like gives the finger to someone that's yeah. trying to uh, pass. Yeah, Razzo Rizzo style. And then the movie... It gets into the plot, which, you know, is a little boring. It's... Uh, Shaft is approached by a black gang leader from Harlem who has been in a turf war with the mafia. And 
uh, because negotiations have broken down. The mafia has kidnapped his child. Mm-hmm. And so the the mobster wants Shaft to find the kid. Shaft has some ethical issues about it. You know, this mob guy is, uh, you know, putting bad stuff into the kid's veins, but he still takes the assignment anyway. And this leads to complications, what's actually going on. And this uh, plays out at a slower pace. Yeah, very leisurely. Uh, and Richard Roundtree, hate to say it, he's only okay. Uh, I think he's good in the movie. He wears a coat really well. Yeah, I like his coat. And he looks really cool. Yeah. And it's very difficult for us, again, to kind of clue into how important this movie is and how it affected the people that saw it. And because they had never seen this kind of stuff in a slick studio film, because... This was a studio film. Mm-hmm. Um, the original novel that it was based on by Ernest Tidyman actually just starred a white guy. Mm. And it was actually um, Gordon Parks that brought Richard Roundtree into the role. When you say that, you'd think that it wouldn't affect the plot at all and they just went with the same script. But it's something that comes up throughout the film where John Shaft as a character is constantly fighting against white people and even the black people of his neighborhood of how authentic he is. I kind of like a lot of the individual scenes in this movie when he's, you know, going at it with the Jewish police commissioner Mm -hmm. or there's that really fun scene towards the end of the movie when one of the Italian mafioso guys comes into the coffee shop where he is and they have this really charged, passive-aggressive racial conversation. Roundtree says, oh, we can get you an espresso. I'm sure they can put garlic looking at you know <laughs> and people are constantly calling shaft like snow white and stuff like that mm-hmm. because while shaft starts the movie like walking around 42nd street he spends most of his time in harlem he is not that kind of working class uh, black character. Mm. He's actually like living in a really nice apartment. He works with the police. He has risen above that. Mm-hmm. Like here's a different role model for you mm-hmm. that He could be a private detective, he can have money, but he could still be in conflict with all the police officers, aka all the white people Mm -hmm. that he has to deal with. I think the mystery plot I was never compelled by, and the action... Is barely non-existent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, I don't know. I think... I I haven't seen the sequels yet. Mm -hmm. um, One of them that Gordon Parks actually directed. And, you know, Shaft in Africa, I've always been tempted by. I did see the Samuel L. Jackson remake when it came out. I feel like the the great Shaft movie has yet to be made. What I was uh, surprised to find out is that Richard Roundtree starred in a Shaft TV series Mm -hmm. that had something like seven 90-minute movies made out of it. Hmm. Where, I think in that context, it'd be interesting to see how he works and if those racial dynamics are still at play and maybe on television that's where you can get more of the mystery plot working but while we're kind of harping on the mystery and how compelling it is it is as a photographer making a movie very texturally interesting to watch like this is a slick picture that's capturing new york and all of its glory in 1971 it's got a good sense of place yeah Yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. and like shaft as cool as he looks looks even cooler when he's walking down those streets which he seems to own i also would never have guessed that it was the same filmmaker as the learning tree which Mm -hmm. is a much more lush Mm -hmm. um like almost gone with the wind looking movie and at sometimes the way that park just shoots shaft like across the street zoomed in Mm -hmm. gives it a kind of documentary feel it's pretty obvious what's recorded on site and what's been dubbed in later but 
you can always hear the uh, traffic noise outside of the apartments. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I found noted in a lot of articles I read about the movie was that Gordon Parks was very clear that this was a studio movie. This was not an auteur kind of project for him. He was under the thumb of producers who actually, when uh, Gordon Parks wanted to cast Richard Roundtree, found an opportunity to exploit the blackness of the movie. Mm. If you look at the ad campaign of this film, it's all about like Richard Roundtree is black and he's going to take this back Mm -hmm. something that uh melvin van peebles did as well in a much more aggressive and in-your-face way Mm -hmm. well in the documentary gordon parks is pretty upfront about saying that you know the learning tree didn't make a lot of money Mm -hmm. this this was a movie that he made for the money and the sequel was a movie he made for the money and his i guess the documentary doesn't address his film the super cops but that seems like a money gig too and he made a decision eventually to stop making movies just for the money and only make movies he was passionate about which led to i think only two or three more movies there was lead belly yeah which he considers his favorite movie it's a biopic about uh the blues musician huddy ledbetter and then later he made a made for tv uh production based on the memoir of solomon northup which was later adapted into 12 years a slave And as Gordon Parks himself said, these are movies that didn't make money. So he had other artistic pursuits that he could take. I think we can maybe take this opportunity to talk a little bit about blaxploitation, which is a subject that we haven't really talked a lot about. Although I think as, you know, uh, fans of trash cinema, both you and I have seen a lot of it. Mm. I'm kind of interested in the status that blaxploitation currently occupies because I think somebody like Spike Lee, when he was coming up, I think he would sort of denigrate black exploitation. Mm-hmm. And the black exploitation films were always treated perhaps um, a little coolly in the black press because so many of them, unlike Shaft, are about, uh, you know, the sort of uh, uh, drug world or crime world um, lifestyle. What a lot of people who were defenders of black exploitation would say is that there had been so many Sidney Poitier movies where the black lead had to be the best. Yeah. In the same way that Gordon Parks had to be the best who did everything to make the yeah. learning tree. Yeah. Why can't, why can't black people see an anti-hero as well? Or, well, uh, to start on this subject, uh, Gordon Parks Jr., Gordon Parks' son, actually became a director as well, and he made the famous film Superfly, which is actually about a drug dealer trying to get out of the system, mm-hmm. which is funny because if you look at all the poster art, it all advertised Superfly as this super cool guy dressed really well, when the film itself is dealing with him just wanting to get out and mm-hmm. to get something different. The film is constantly dealing with the question of, what, why don't you just deal drugs? You can have all the stuff that you want aren't you going to be happy and the main character priest played by ron o'neill is like no i don't want that like i want something different Mm -hmm. which is funny that uh, gordon parks's son would make that film Mm -hmm. and what ended up happening with superfly is it was actually a massive hit Mm -hmm. shaft made 12 million dollars when it came out superfly made 30 million (laughs) dollars and that's almost impossible to imagine i was looking at an inflation calculator and 30 million dollars is actually 175 million dollars in today's day and age which is mm. insane considering that superfly was an independent production so the black exploitation boom only lasted for really five or six years mm-hmm. you know probably a majority of them were not actually directed by black filmmakers they were all directed by white guys yeah and um i have to say i'm a little su- suspicious or wary of the place that black exploitation movies currently occupy in the trash cinema ecosystem because i feel like they have such a huge following among white people yeah like you know it's that quentin tarantino influence 
and I'm I'm just a little wary of that. I because I'll, the, these movies were sold as kind of empowerment fantasies for a black audience, um, and by and, white guys, by by white guys, and now that they're they're you know so many years after the fact are so appreciated by a kind of um, knowing white audience, I, I, and I and we know that trash cinema connoisseurship mm-hmm. um a certain amount of irony comes into that i mm-hmm. think uh so i so is that the complications that you have with that subject that you think that you know trash connoisseurs are approaching it from an ironic standpoint well not always i mean i think superfly is a really good movie sweet mm-hmm. sweetback's a good movie but when you start to get into stuff like um black samson yeah <laughs> you know movies like that like like there's a kitsch quality to mm-hmm. it and you find that's problematic yeah i, I guess mean, it's so. a complicated kind of feeling to deal with right yeah because again we can only come to that from the white perspective which has been the dominant perspective and was also the people that made these movies i think i would i would just be less concerned about it if all the like big black exploitation fans that i see weren't white people mm-hmm. now like when they did an ozzy davis and ruby d retrospective at the light bulb and we went to go see um, Cotton Comes to Harlem, it was an audience filled with Caucasian people. Yeah, I was a little uh, wary of that. (laughs) But white guys like Jack Hill made Coffee Mm -hmm. and Foxy Brown, which are fascinating movies that I don't think you can even approach from an ironic standpoint. I like some of the Fred Williamson movies, you know. Yeah, uh, especially the ones that Larry Cohen directed. Yes. Like, um, uh, Black Caesar in particular. But I also like uh, the the legend of N-word Charlie. Yes. Which, <laughs> Listen, damned if you don't is how I'm going to be on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, he also starred in Joshua. Yeah. Um, take for, a Hard Ride is kind of fun. Um, take a Hard Ride B. Three the a, Hard Way. A Italian spaghetti <laughs> western that happens to star Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, and Jim Kelly. Mm-hmm. But Fred Williamson also directed films himself. And the, I think the mean Johnny Barrows, his first directorial effort is probably the best one. And then it's a law of diminishing returns <laughs> as you go on. But they're all available if you want to check them out. Fred Williamson is still making movies too. He is. Yeah. And he is a staunch Republican that is <laughs> very pro-Trump. And I'd just like to bring up Ozzie Davis again, because he was a fascinating figure that did have a bunch of super strong directorial efforts that all starred uh, a black cast, like Buck and Preacher, which was his take on the Western, or he made a film about Vietnam vets that come back to the inner city and then have to take on the drug dealers that have taken over called Gordon's War. And these aren't as kind of threadbare as a lot of movies with those plots are, but they've kind of slipped into obscurity when people are talking about the black exploitation kind of wave. There's also stars that kind of went a little bit further than that one big boom. There's an actor called Steve James who unfortunately passed away in 1994, but he was like the black martial arts star during the canon era. He actually uh, co-starred with the American Ninja himself, Michael Dudikoff, in a (laughs) bunch of pictures. And he starred in a forgotten film called Riverbend that was directed by Sam Furstenberg but it was one of his only starring roles where he moves back to his small town and has to take on the racist police officers and that was made like in 1994 where that kind of wave had completely turned into either parody or had been forgotten and finally one last note Gordon Parks Jr. 
I think would have been a longer lasting director than Gordon Parks was, but he unfortunately passed away in a helicopter accident while he was scouting for his next movie. And he did leave a very small filmography of very strong films, including one called Thomasine and Bushrod, which has been described as like Bonnie and Clyde starring two black bank robbers, but is actually that but also about the difficulty of two black people having a relationship in a marriage and just living normally in the era that the movie takes place, which is around the 1910s. So I would definitely recommend to check that one out. And one of the other reasons Gordon Parks supposedly retired from filmmaking is that he and Gordon Parks Jr. had a bit of a like um, competition about who could make the best films. And when his son passed away, the kind of need to make movies it became very difficult for him Mm. because he was associated with his son so do we have any letters this week we do have letters as per usual you can email us at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from nathaniel hendricks he goes hey justin and will and hello from texas been listening to the podcast since last howdy partner oh boy no forget it and i look forward to it every week i'm fortunate enough to work at one of the video rental stores here in austin and it's allowed me to easily see films you guys discuss and recommend including detour and lady in white wonderful one of the rental store locations had to close in december but i made sure to take a photo of this very stupid jackie chan themed graffiti in our bathroom for posterity (laughs) and after the jackie chan episode i thought you all might appreciate it well he actually wrote y'all so stay in character <laughs> keep up the great work best nathaniel but what's uh, what's uh, some of the graffiti in the jackie chan themed graffiti he sent us so i'm gonna post this photo on filmtrap.com where you can find this episode and show notes but uh you got flush hour one to three good stuff Bolise story one and two poo am i <laughs> uh first wipe shaolin wooden men young toilets Ah, look at all this good stuff. I like some deep cuts in there. Yeah, exactly. Like, And there's a beautiful photo of young Jackie Chan. Thank you very much for writing that letter. And uh, that photo will live forever. And speaking of Austin, when me and my other co-host of Loose Cannons, Matthew Kumar, went to uh, visit Austin back in, geez, September of last year... I made Matthew take me to every video store <laughs> where I rented rare stuff so I could then watch. Nice. So uh, I probably, if he was working that day, met that guy. Just a regular cool duder and wet movie. <laughs> Going from store to store. Wow, that's a deep uh, YouTube cut. <laughs> I thought we rated you of that. Uh, no, no, know? far from it. So we have a letter here from Alex Griffith, and he goes, Dear Important Cinema Club, As a recent Patreon subscriber, I enjoyed the Batman and Robin episode and wanted to write to you about my brief but noteworthy brush with the movie's ongoing legacy. The boss of the production company I work at in Munich is good friends with Ralph Moeller, who plays a cop wearing an eye patch who appears at the one hour and three mark. I don't remember. (laughs) He's seduced and killed by Poison Ivy as she breaks free out of Arkham Asylum. Mr. Moeller is a B-celebrity in Germany and in fact good friends with one Arnold Schwarzenegger And he often appears in small cameos. Okay, that's a stretch. Bit parts in his movies. Most famous, he also plays the trainer Hagen in Gladiator. Anyway, the point is that as a personal favorite of Moeller, we had to edit a showreel for his website, which including scrubbing through the Blu-ray of Batman and Robin, Conan the Adventurer, the Scorpion King, and Universal Soldier to find him. Don't worry, I'm not suggesting you do an episode on Mr. Moeller. What a filmography, though, I have to say. <laughs> though, if you did, I can pretty much guarantee that you can get him for an interview. Who else is talking about Ralph Moeller in 2018? Only us. <laughs> you know what? I mean, he's joking, but the Patreon episode <laughs> where we interview him about being in all these movies. All right, Ralph, 
we're going to do an interview with you, but it'll be behind a paywall to about 77 people. Yeah. But I also wanted to suggest uh, some filmmakers for you to do for a podcast. Gott Spielman. Don't know who that is. Do you? No, I never heard of him. A Patreon episode on his revenge would be great. Ma, I'm going to have to check him out. I've we'll never look, even we'll heard of that filmmaker. Or Werner Herzog. Or Wim Wenders. I, I have heard of them. <laughs> Sorry. Wim Wenders. Wim Wenders. There are some great directors in the German-speaking world, as you have discovered with Ulmer, so I would love to hear you discuss some of them. Great work with the pod, Alex. It is interesting we haven't ventured into the new German cinema. We did a lot of German direct. There was like a stretch there where there was like five or six, almost in a row. that like like all, Lang, all guys who came to Hollywood. Yeah, that were working in the studio system. But you're right, we haven't touched the like new wave of a German cinema. Well, we will eventually. All right, so the last letter. It is from... Javier Nunez Perez Sion. Sorry if I said your name incorrectly. And it goes, letters from Berlin. Hey, Justin and Will. Long-time listener, currently living in Berlin. I love the show and await impatiently every Wednesday for a new episode. Sometimes Wednesday, sometimes Tuesday. Who yeah, knows? Monday even. <laughs> no Monday anymore. We record them too late. Okay. I have a request for an episode. I really like if you discuss Almodovar. You already did Bunuel, so it would be kind of fitting. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. His dialogue, especially if you get the cultural context, is just absolutely brilliant. I don't know if we'd get the cultural context on his dialogue. Probably but... not, no. <laughs> I will always stop to watch Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. It is by no means perfect, but it's just laugh out loud funny every time. I'm also fond of some of his most hated films. I'm so excited came to me like a breath of fresh air after having spent a year living abroad in Bordeaux. It is Spanish, gay, and just completely absurd. It is also an interesting metaphor on the current political and economical situation of Spain. I gotta jump in here where some of the kind of trepidation we have with some of these filmmakers is that me and you don't believe we have the cultural context to speak of them in any kind of authority. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely talk about Almodovar. At Absolutely. Some point. I mean, he's such a. I think. I think one reason we haven't is because he's kind of such a giant. Yeah. Um, and also because, frankly, I've kind of fallen out of love with Almodovar in the last decade. But you don't think that watching his classic films would kind of reignite that love? It probably would. I just think. Um, Not a big The Skin I Live In fan. That one was all right. I did not care for I'm So Excited, but I didn't realize there was a metaphor there for uh, the current uh, economic crisis. And what am I saying? We always jump into filmmakers that we know almost nothing about yeah. or have any authority to talk Just about. Just look at this week. <laughs> Gordon Parks. Yeah. That was a setup. I wanted that. That's the punchline. Yeah. Justin, I don't understand why you don't like In the Mood for Love. I recently saw it for the first time in the Babylon Theater here in Berlin, and it's just an amazing masterpiece. It's sensual and works just like a beautiful broken object. So me not liking In the Mood for Love, what can I say? I wasn't in the mood when I watched it that one time, and that's what I remember it from. It's undeniably a masterpiece. Well, to our listeners, I mean, myself and the rest of Justin's friends are always trying to stage interventions for him to try, <laughs> that to, is not true. try to explain to him. Uh, but, you know... Um, maybe I think I think I think you'll agree that the consensus um, of course it is, is yeah <laughs> I'm 100% sure if I watched it again I'd be like oh no wow this movie it's so painterly <laughs> and the way that the emotion is treated as kind of bubbling under the surface that's what makes it so potent when I watch it didn't feel that way. Well, Justin can't relate because, you know... The, I have a the, loving relationship. And the, and the idea of unrequited love <laughs> is just too much for Justin to grasp. What are you talking about? Whenever there's a woman that I find attractive, and if I go and make an approach very politely, and she says, not interested, I go, okay, that's fine. And then I move on with my life. <laughs> so it's never happened to me that there's been any kind of unrequited love. And you've and you've never let that... Uh, you've never let the, the pain of that rejection... Uh, what are you talking about? 
about there's so many fish in the sea will <laughs> uh but yeah it's a good example of the kind of mind space i was in when we recorded that episode that was also a weird one where peter kaplowski was just sitting on the couch when we recorded it we don't often have a live studio audience <laughs> yeah which probably made me a little bit more salty than i usually am especially that when i said that i did like it very much he reacted with kind of you're like what what are you talking about after promising to be silent yeah which you know will you're uh, often a contrarian against some things that are popular yeah i'm not this one though good <laughs> no, god <laughs> because you know that's the intelligentsia you're not contrarian against that you're right wong kar wai doesn't speak to you as a working man what are you talking about i love wong kar wai <laughs> film right. it's just in the mood for love at the time that i watch it wasn't really my thing all right and the more people are like, I love it so much, the more I go, you know what? I know I need to watch this at some point, but it's a masterpiece. I don't need to see it, really. Which we've talked about before, where like a lot of movies we've put off, when really you experience it the way that it's meant to be seen, you realize why it's held in so much high regard. P.S. I love your end credit scene. I guess he means like the thing we do after the music. Oh, okay. Could you do an episode on Yorgos Lantimos? Thanks again, Javier. Um... I don't have a lot to say about Lanthimos. Not really. I really like his movies, though. Yeah. But I don't know what I would say. I think maybe if he had a little bit more of a body of work, yeah, I could because it. I'm I'm suspicious of him. I want to see really? where he goes. Oh, yeah. why? Well, I'm just a, I'm just a little worried the novelty might wear off soon. Mm, you didn't think that the lobster and killing of the sacred deer were different enough or dog tooth i liked killing of a sacred deer. well listen i i don't want to yeah i haven't you don't want to put your I in the mood for love like opinion down on the table to make people angry yeah but i do like him and because i feel like he's he's building up to somewhere and it could either be that he starts going into self-parody or... you know what that sounds like a patreon episode all right that's good <laughs> so if you're not a patreon subscriber it's five dollars a month go to patreon important cinema club and you get a new episode every week and this week we basically talk about outsider Canadian artists, specifically uh, the VHS gold that is Phobe and Beyond the Seventh Door. Yeah, Canucksploitation, basically. Yeah, but like a very thin slice of it that until only a few years ago finally got to resurface. And if I can sell this a little more, these two movies may change your life. <laughs> and I just want to give like a little tease here. We may talk about my favorite Canucksploitation trash movie ever. Film. I know what you're going to say. Okay. <laughs> so definitely check that out because we're passionate about it. And these are films that, you know, you're not going to hear talked about that much. So you should absolutely check it out. So next week, what are we talking about, Will? We're finally venturing into experimental cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be talking about, you know, the, the Mac Daddy of experimental cinema, Stan Brackage, mm-hmm. and then probably a couple of other filmmakers, too. We, we, probably, yeah, like... The uh, Kuchar Brothers, mm-hmm. uh, Maya Darren, you know? Yeah, basically, it'll be kind of a um, primer on experimental cinema. Will's much more versed in this than I am, so I'm getting my feet wet into some more advanced topics. But that's the way we're going to approach it, because mm-hmm. experimental cinema is always something that... When people talk about it, they're usually obsessed with it. It's very rare that you see someone that's like, oh, you know, I watch experimental cinema here and there. And it's a very um, disparate mm-hmm. canon. You know? Yeah. For people to, to want to get an entry point into it, it might be hard for them. Exactly. So that's what we're going to be, hopefully. Yeah. And before I go, you know, something that we've never done was just advertise our social media presence, which I listen to podcasts and they do that all the time at the end of the episode. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, yeah, sure. My Twitter handle is Will Sloan Esquire. So that's Will Sloan ESQ. Uh, I'm DeClue J. You know where I am uh, very active is on Letterboxd, which you can follow me at Justin DeClue. And don't forget to visit us at FilmTrap.com where you can find all the show notes 
notes for like I've been doing it for about a dozen episodes now so like all the titles we talk about trailers for them if we say a list you'll find the list there and notes and stuff like that so please visit that website and until next week my name is Justin McClue I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening So, Justin, I was at a wedding this weekend in Hamilton. I just got back today, in fact. And uh, at the banquet hall where the reception was taking place, I was looking around and the place looked kind of familiar to me. And then (laughs) I've seen this place hundreds of times. And then suddenly it hit me. (laughs) This is the place where Frank D'Angelo shoots all his movies. Wow. If you don't know, Frank D'Angelo, local beverage mogul, um, restaurateur and legitimate businessman who makes uh, vanity films starring himself mm-hmm. kind of good fellas ripoffs and a lot of faded stars and if you want to check him out watch no deposit and no deposit the big bank robbery scene the bank the, the set of it is this banquet hall so do you ever get obsessed with like finding locations or visiting locations for movies this seems like it's something that's much bigger now or maybe i'm just more aware of it like blu-rays and dvds have like oh we're gonna go back to the location where it took place or i hear people on podcasts uh talk about how they took like a left turn to go to like the place where they shot something i don't know it's kind of interesting if you care about that area i mean We've probably both seen that documentary of Frank Hannenlauter walking around 42nd Street finding the locations for Basket Case. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting just because 42nd Street is so different now than it was then. I mean, I did once do a like 42nd Street tour where I tried to find the the porn theater where Robert De Niro took Sybil Shepard in Taxi Driver. And I did. And it's... uh, I don't think it's, it's probably the, not there anymore. Well, right? I don't. Well, it has been converted into like a, a family theater like mm. they all have. I can't remember which one it is. But. but I guess like the only reason someone would look out a location is like you mentioned, if to see how much it's changed mm-hmm. or it's a modern movie and you're like, wow, look, that's where they shot some of all fears, which I visited as a high schooler. Well, I don't know. Like I can imagine it being kind of fun to like just uh, take in the vibe. You're like, oh man, my heroes were here and they made movies. I mean, I, I know that uh, the stairs from the exorcist this is where the guy fell down yeah i mean i i don't know it's like uh, i haven't been to la since i was a child but mm. if i went i would probably do a charlie chaplin ed wood tour of la mm. um i would i would like to see uh, uh tor johnson's house where uh, bella lugosi leaves <laughs> and walks off screen I, I would look for that i'm sure it's like n- not even there anymore i mean probably wait, not is it a historic monument like they've like well it, it should be <laughs> i think but we do live in a place where they shoot tons of movies so we're probably walking around and locations of lots of hits that you know came to toronto used toronto streets and toronto locations like goodwill hunting death wish five the face of death <laughs> cruel intention the time traveler's wife uh, jumper uh, finding uh, forest all, all my favorite films blast the child's k19 the Widowmaker. it's like these are my top 10 favorite <laughs> movies of all time of course we're reading a list of toronto shot movies uh or i guess where movies go to die okay so do you remember when we were kids like around 1999 2000 2001 this was the peak of hollywood north in toronto i was in ottawa so i wasn't aware of oh it. okay well it was all I mean, as Canadians, we love any American media attention. Mm-hmm. So, so there were there was like there were a couple of years there when we were just like over the moon with all these stars who were in the city filming, and then SARS came to Toronto, mm-hmm. and then all the film production left. But you know, they still sometimes shoot movies here. I remember seeing Kick Ass at the Scotiabank Theater, and there's a scene in that movie where the main character goes to see a movie at a movie theater, and it's the Scotiabank Theater. So our theater burst into applause when that came on screen. (laughs) And I don't mean like 
Canadian films that take place in Toronto, like Last Night or other things like that. I mean the ones that try to shamelessly like play Toronto as in every city. Mm-hmm. And these films often suck, like Max Payne, which is has Toronto all over it. Well, there's a, just a lack of specificity, you know? Like, uh, you know, we like movies that really feel like the city they're set in, I mm-hmm. think. Whether it's a Shaft in New York or whether it's, even if it's like, post-industrial Pittsburgh in a movie like Martin. Yeah, like there's a kind of character to that. That That's why these movies are often not good, because the decision to shoot Toronto as in any place robs it of that texture and of that character. Whereas I think a movie like Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is shot in Toronto, kind of has a bit of a Toronto flavor, don't you? Or do you disagree? Well, it's set... Uh, specifically in Toronto. Yeah, but that's what I mean. It's yeah, like, it does. Yeah. But when you want to make it in any city, that's when you lose that stuff. Man, just looking at this list, it's just like terrible film after terrible film. The Adventures of Pluto Nash, all the American Pie straight to video oh, films. Good God. Actually, American Psycho did shoot in Toronto and pass it off as 80s New York. Uh, downsizing, the recent Alexander Payne film was shot in Toronto, and there's a scene where Matt Damon is, is in Exhibition Place. I the, is it supposed to, to be that. Toronto? Uh, no. Okay, and it's downsizing, an critical. I liked <laughs> it. I liked it. Whoa! I saying, really? Yeah, yeah, I thought it was Contrarian pretty... opinion. But. Uh, I, last summer, I finally got around to watching Exit Wounds, starring Steven Seagal. <laughs> I saw that in theaters. Yeah, g- great film. And that is shot all over Toronto. And imagine how swelled with pride I was to see the Aikido A Steven Seagal <laughs> right next to Roy Thompson Hall, directing traffic in uh, the uh, St. Lawrence... What, what the fuck is St. Lawrence name? Market? Yeah, St. Lawrence Market, yeah. Are you having a moment of sobriety right now with Steven Seagal and ironically loving him? Because... The man who wrote the book on Steven Seagal, which we talked about in the episode we did about him, is having, like, a crisis of conscience. Yeah, look, we always knew Steven Seagal was a piece of shit. And yes. frankly, I think that's part of what watching his movies and laughing at them is part of. So, like, I think it's a little disingenuous to... But there's the illusion that, like, oh, well, he's probably not that much of a piece of shit. I <laughs> always suspected he was that much of a piece of shit. So not, nothing I've heard in the last six months surprises me, frankly. No, what is the name? And I still enjoy laughing at him being a big, dumb piece of shit in movies. <laughs> but I don't think that the author of that book, Ver, who wrote Seagology should have like, oh man, what did I do? Because the book is fairly clear-headed about who Seagal is. Yeah, well, I mean, part of uh, Verne's defense of Seagal in that book was that some of the early movies could be interpreted as leftish mm-hmm. because they were all all suspicious of like deep state uh cia overreach and that sort of thing but what they really are are far nut job right wing yeah as um given example by the book that steven seagal oh, just yes. wrote what was it called uh, oh, the the way of the shadow warrior or something where it's it has an introduction by sheriff joe arpaio the, the worst man in the world <laughs> and have you purchased this book yet will i you know your fingers hovered over the buy button I actually don't want to support it. That's the perfect answer. And that's an honest answer, too. And, you know, the weird thing is, like, I'll support anything. <laughs> I, I went to see fucking Wonder Wheel. <laughs> but you draw the line there. Yeah, I think I do. 